grace, mercy, and peace are yours through the triune God. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m., we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying through the word. For God speaks peace to trusting hearts, to those who seek the ways of wisdom. Let us pray. Merciful God, let your spirit soar free in the proclaiming of scripture. Confirm your covenant promises. Sustain the weary with the word. Guide us in Jesus' way of love. Amen. A reading from the book of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Eternal One appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Al Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us and I will give you many, many descendants. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, but me, my covenant is with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. And because I have made you the ancestor of many nations, your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham. I will make you very fertile. I will produce nations from you and kings will come from you. I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants God after you. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will now be Sarah. I will bless her and even give you a son from her. I will bless her so that she will become nations and kings of peoples will come from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the gospel of John. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They responded, we are Abraham's children. We've never been anyone's slaves. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus answered, I assure you that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave isn't a permanent member of the household, but a son or daughter is. Therefore, the son makes you free. You really will be free. I assure that whoever keeps my word will never die. The people said to Jesus, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham and the prophets died. Yet you say, whoever keeps my word will never die. Are you greater than our father, Abraham? He died and the prophets died. So who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is meaningless. My father, who you say is your God, is the one who glorifies me. You don't know God, but I do. 
If I said I didn't know God, I would be like you, a liar. But I do know God, and I keep my father's word. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and was happy. You aren't even 50 years old, the people replied. How can you say that you have seen Abraham? I assure you, Jesus replied, before Abraham was, I am the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One September weekend in 1995, a few thousand people met at a convention center in Seattle to prepare for an apocalyptic standoff with the federal government. At the expo, you could sign up to defend yourself from the coming political and economic collapse, stock up on beef jerky, learn strategies for tax evasion, and browse titles by white nationalists. The sixth annual preparedness expo made national papers that year because it served as a clearinghouse for the militia movement, a decentralized reactionary movement of armed local anti-government paramilitaries. The bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building was still fresh in the public consciousness. And Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were household names. Eric Ward was one of the few Black people walking the convention floor that year, but he was there on a mission. In the 1990s, Ward was the field organizer for the Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment, a six-state coalition working to reduce hate crimes and violence in the Pacific Northwest and Mountain States region. They did a lot of primary research, often undercover. Now a cardinal rule of organizing is that you don't ask people to do anything you haven't done yourself. So Eric Ward spent that weekend as he spent so many among people plotting to remove him from their white defined ethnostate. You thought your job was rough. Ward later reflected how it helped, despite its blood-curdling anti-Black racism, that at least some factions of the white nationalist movement saw me as a potential ally against their true archenemy. No one had to say it because everyone was thinking it. Maybe you are too. Eric Ward was talking about attitudes towards Jews. He wrote those words in the wake of the Charlottesville rally, where men that look like me chanted blood and soil and Jews will not replace us under the light of tiki torches and without the anonymity of hoods. 
reward organizing against white supremacy includes naming anti-Semitism, the pervasive and wrong belief that Jewish people are somehow ethnically or culturally inferior to so-called white people. On our branch of the Christian family tree, prejudice against Jews and stereotypes about Judaism don't seem like our problems. In the wake of the Holocaust, many church bodies, including our own, repudiated centuries-old teachings about Jewish inferiority. They reclaimed the language of covenant to describe God's relationship to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is well and good, work that we should continue to claim. But the Gospel of John is still in our Bibles. Now, scholars have spilled oceans of ink trying to figure out what the Gospel writer meant when he invokes hoi eudaioi, the Jews over 70 times in this story of Jesus. After all, Jesus is also a Jew. He preaches in synagogues. He quotes the scriptures of Israel. He attends festivals at the temple in Jerusalem, like the festival of Sukkot, when the conversation we overheard takes place. Maybe. Maybe when John writes that Jesus spoke with the Jews who believed in him, the gospel writer acknowledged that Jesus's followers eventually came from many different cultures. Maybe this conversation is a universal example of how human beings are resistant to new truths. But that's no excuse for the hateful words the gospel writer places on Jesus' lips. Words like, you do not know God. And worse, your father is the devil. You are his children. Long before the preparedness expo and, and delusions about an international cabal controlling the government, Long before the Middle Ages, when popular anti-Semitic images found new life on the printing press, and long before cranky St. John Chrysostom railed against his parishioners in Antioch for worshiping with their Jewish neighbors, calling the local synagogue a place of Satan. Long before that, Christians passed along a story of Jesus that both praised God's great love for the whole world and demonized Jewish people who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. At the time, those words might have carried a partisan feel, like the ways that Democrats and Republicans speak about each other in this country. But just as it's becoming clear in our own time that partisan fighting has 
metastasized into something toxic, this book bearing good news has come to mean bad news for so many, too many. So what do we do? We can't take scissors and cut out every hateful word in the Bible, and chucking out the Gospel of John would still leave us to contend with anti-Jewish rhetoric in the other Gospels. The best most people can do is to never read it, never preach it, and hope that no one notices this eighth chapter in the fourth Gospel. But friends, while these words were placed in Jesus' mouth, they aren't the only ones. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free comes from this chapter of John. Likewise, whoever is without sin should cast the first stone comes from this chapter. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. That too is found in John chapter eight. Jesus's own spirit gives us these words to resist the temptation to make only one group, the children of Abraham. This Lent we are reclaiming God's covenant promises. Last week, we heard about the rainbow covenant for all creation. And this week, we meet Abraham, formerly known as Abram. At the beginning of chapter 17, we heard he is 99 years old. At the end of chapter 16, he was 86. 13 years have passed without a conversation between Abraham and El Shaddai. Such an extended absence that it seems as though God needs to make a new introduction. But more than that, God has more promises to reveal. Now, perhaps Abram didn't mind the divine silence. After all, after years of longing for an heir, he now has a son, Ishmael, son of his second wife, Hagar, now 13 years old. Abraham trusted that he would be, as God had promised, the ancestor of a great nation. Things were going all right. Not great, but not bad. And in those times, a couple ounces of faith is enough to get by. But then God shatters the silence. El Shaddai sweeps onto the scene with more promises. You, Patriarch Abram, will have a new name, Abraham for you will be the father of not just one nation, but of many nations. Your wife, Sarai, too, will have a new name, Sarah, and from her will come nations 
and royalty. Many nations? This is too much. Keep reading and you'll find Abraham face down in the desert dirt, laughing hysterically at the idea of a 100-year-old man becoming the father of anyone or a 90-year-old woman giving birth. But look closely. Are those tears in the corner of Abraham's eyes? After 13 years, his little bit of faith isn't enough. God wants more? As if he and Sarai hadn't tried for years to conceive. As if a second wife hadn't driven a wedge between them. Now God is raising the subject again? Abraham can't do this anymore. And so to God, the patriarch says, if only you would accept Ishmael. Literally, if only Ishmael existed in front of your face. Here is how steadfast El Shaddai, the covenant maker, is. God takes it from Abraham. God takes Abraham's derision and despair. It doesn't matter how much faith the old man has or doesn't have. God is yet more faithful. After Abraham catches his breath, God speaks again the promise of another son, one from Sarah to be called Isaac whose name means laughter. As for Ishmael, whose name means God hears, the Eternal One acknowledges Abraham's love for his eldest, formerly only, child. Ishmael will also be a great nation, the ancestor of 12 tribes, not unlike his future nephew, Jacob. As it happens, Muslims revere Abraham as a prophet and a role model as much as Jews and Christians do. In the Quran, Abraham and Ishmael traveled together to the city of Mecca and raised the foundations of the Kaaba, the holiest site in Islam. Three faiths claim this common ancestor, this prophet of many nations as a model of faithfulness. Personally, I wish he had found a little more faith. Faith enough to stop Sarah from tormenting Hagar, from expelling both second wife and first son from the family. But then I wish the writer of the Gospel of John had found a little more faith enough to see the common ties between Jesus and his Jewish contemporaries. And it goes without saying that I wish I had a little more faith, enough faith 
to look beyond today and the day after and the day after to imagine a more joyful and life-giving future beyond the grip of coronavirus. I wish I had more faith, but Abraham's legacy, like Jesus after him, doesn't rest on human faith, not at all. It's the faithfulness of the covenant maker that counts. It's the steadfast love of the eternal one who promised Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The Bible from cover to cover is full of questionable human choices, but the creator's choices, even the laughable ones have the last word. I think about Jesus's last words in his incendiary conversation with fellow Jews. Before Abraham was, I am. And yes, as the word that birthed creation, Jesus existed before Abraham was a twinkle in anyone's eye. But Jesus isn't speaking in the past tense. I was, when he says, I am, he takes us back to the burning bush, commissioning Moses to lead Isaac's descendants out of slavery. God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am is the holy name of the God who frees enslaved bodies and minds. I am can also be translated, I will be. God, faithful in the past, faithful now, faithful in the future. Fellow children of Abraham, some of our forebears in faith were fixated on who was in, and who was out, who got the blessing of the covenant and who was illegitimate, even demonic. But God's promises are not ours to manage. They never were and thankfully never will be. So take your struggles, your doubts, your questions and the passages of scripture that you hate and bring them to God, the eternal one, I am, will answer. And if Jesus's words about being a slave to sin strike a nerve, like it did in John's gospel, offer that to God as well. Who knows? The sun may have a more joyful, more vibrant freedom than you or I have dreamed of. Jesus might even shock us into peals of laughter because God's promise is always too much, too much for our faith to reckon with. 
God's faithfulness will more than make up for that. And that, my friends, is a gift of sheer grace to all of us. Embraced in grace, let us give all glory and gratitude to God, whose goodness does indeed shine on us. Shall be a 